Okay, folks, we're back after a small break in the podcast. I'm joined by a former Senate President Rick Halford. How you doing, Rick? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Senator Halford. <laughs> no, just Rick. First time meeting. I've read a lot about you, heard a lot about you. Glad you're uh, able to sit down with me for a little bit and talk. Um, you, were, you were in the legislature for, what, 20, 24 years? 24 years in the legislature, and another, another two years after that as Republican National Committee, but I served a four-year term as on the RNC. So you were first elected and what when the first elected 1978. Wow. So you were there right with the uh, pipeline going and the permanent fund yep. and all that stuff. Yep. I was the majority leader of the house when we passed the permanent fund dividend program, the final program. Uh, I think I was on the first gas line advocacy group. I can't remember what we called it. It was a committee of the house in the late seventies. Uh, so there's some things that just go on forever. So you were there when uh, I've heard some stories about Dick Randolph, Ken Fanning, and Dave Cuddy. Or they were kind of all char- characters. Yeah, there were lots of great characters. But there were also the people that kind of came through statehood. So a lot of them were still there. I served with you know Bob Ziegler and just a lot of interesting and interested people. Were you there with uh, Clem Tillian or was he... Tillian was the Senate president when okay. I came to the House. I was on the House side at that time. I did a podcast with him here about a month ago, and mm-hmm. he was really, really fascinating stories he had. Yep, he does. So what got you first interested, and in why did you want to run for office? It was interesting. I didn't, I, you know, I got an education in with a history major from Alaska Methodist University in the 60s. Oh, I, I have and, a history degree from UA. And, and I... Uh, I declared a, a pl- political science major as well because they still had a, a low-hour major, so I ended up with two majors and a minor in economics. But I survived Alaska Methodist University, and then I got out went into the Air National Guard for a while, went into the hunting, fishing, guiding, and flying business. And uh, I actually, I think it was in the spring, I just finished running a bear hunt on the Alaska Peninsula and came back and went to a Republican district convention and then went to the Republican state convention and got talked into running when I didn't really expect to, but I was at a point where I, I'd bought a lodge and had a lot of, of uh, obligations and trying to figure it out. you you got a young family, and I had gotten to the point where I could see that I could make it, and I was looking for more airplanes and things interesting. And I was curious, and I got uh, basically encouraged to run. And the political parties, I expect the Democrats are the same way the Republicans are. You know, if they can get somebody else to go do it and don't have to go themselves, they'll encourage the heck out of them. Well, someone once told me that the the people, the the ideal people you want to be in office are the people who don't want to run but were approached by other people. <laughs> Because it's the ones who say, I want to really, you know, sometimes nobody wants them to run. Yeah. And they run. And they, sometimes those folks get elected. And it's. Well, but I came down here right out of the front end of an airplane. And the thing about that is if you make a mistake, the the, the results are pretty quickly evident. So you're, you're a pilot, too, I was reading. Yeah. Here. Yeah. I was a commercial pilot for years. I had an air taxi operation. But, but uh, you know, in the political process, uh, it's not nearly as direct as that. You know, you can lose, and if you act like you won a discussion, half the people think you won. 
uh, it's just a very different sense of reality. Mm -hmm. Reality in the political process is perception. Reality in the flying business is hardcore reality. What happens? Yeah, no, I, fl I fly gliders. I grew up flying gliders, and it's mm -hmm. even uh, it's the glider. You know, there's no engine, so you got yeah. one chance to, to got, land. Got fantastic glide ratio and and speed brakes and lots of interesting things. They're they're great airplanes, and they're a great education to anybody that wants to fly. I mean, they're good. So, what was your first your first campaign? Did you? I mean, I've run for office a few times, and the first time I. I really had no idea what I was doing. I had, luckily, people helped me and got advice. But did you? Uh, I ran and didn't win in a multi-seat district, and uh, I had kind of learned something from that. And the next time around, I ran and I won. Uh, but you know, it really was a very different process. And by that time in my life, I think I had realized that if you don't know something, don't open your mouth and prove it. Keep your mouth shut and don't and wait and see if you can understand and learn things. I think it was so. Ben Franklin, or I think it was Ben Franklin said, it's better to be thought an idiot than open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's that's exactly I sat between, I sat on the House floor between Dick Randolph and Bob Bettersworth. And uh, anything that was really interesting, of course, Dick Randolph would always say. So we kibitzed back and forth as we watched the debate and the process. And uh, in those days, you didn't have telephones that were the Library of Congress and communication on everything, so you didn't text. You sent notes all over the place. And every year I was in the legislature, I took all the notes out of my desk and put them in a manila envelope and wrote the year on them, and they're still in a drawer. Oh, wow. Can but, I can but, I see no, those? <laughs> <laughs> those? Those there, are the good— a, There's a lot of hilarious things. And, you know, some things are always going on. Uh, and they don't change with time. Other things are are issues that were done and gone and, you know, are history. But it's an amazing learning process. You know, the, and this is said by National Council of State Legislatures or lots of places. They, they talk about the state legislatures as incubators of thought and learning and everything else. And they really are. Mm -hmm. Because you don't have to, for me, I could run a business in the real world with, you know, dirt and all the, you know, working on a stuck cat in a mud hole or butchering a moose or hunting sheep or fixing an airplane. I had a piece of my life that was real world connected to places I cared about. Mm -hmm. And I could also come down here for a part of the year and put on a costume and a necktie and learn something and eventually feel like it was something worthwhile. So you were, it's interesting because you were there in the late 70s and 80s during the, the big boom and the money and the pipeline mm -hmm. and then you were there for the big crash in the 80s and I mean, we're kind of experiencing <clears throat> the last few years something, something similar. What was it like when, I know the 80s, I've, you know, I was born in 84 so I wasn't around mm -hmm. when it happened but I was a kid, and I was in New Mexico. But you, you know, in history, and I have an economics degree as well, so minor, kind of like you. But we read about it, and it, it sounded, you know, pretty horrible. I was the co-chairman of the finance committee in 1986, 87, 88, whenever it was, that the price of oil went to eight dollars a barrel. You hear about people just leaving and, state and, and throwing the keys. Well, we had a lot more production, so the impact was not as great as uh, 
uh, it would have been otherwise. What, it was like but two, it was two million there. barrels, or well, the peak was about two million oh. barrels, and we weren't that far off the peak. But the point is, eight dollar a barrel oil uh, was uh, a pretty substantial bite in the budget, and uh, I don't know what the you know if you the the problem is we talk in in dollars like they're constant value and they aren't constant value. You know, the 185 that I bought, <coughs> what, 42, 43 years ago, I bought almost brand new for 26,000 bucks. And you could buy, when I got out of college, you could buy a, a new Corvette for four or $5,000. Mm-hmm. So things were very, very different in in dollar values. The first dividend was $1,000, but that would be $3,000 today. And uh, Yeah, it's funny, sometimes I'll go online and, there's like a inflation calculator, and you can type in the yep. you know the year, what year it was, and the amount, and it tells you what it is in today's value. And especially when you start going back 50, 60 years, you start to realize that the, the, the purchasing power, you know. Well, the, there's some real lessons in that. You know, we went through years in 79, 80, 81, 82, in, in that time frame somewhere, and, and years do roll together in your memory as you get into your 70s, but, but the inflation rates were double digit. Yeah, that's when the mortgages and, were what 20% yeah. or Well, I don't think they ever got to maybe 20% almost up there and but when you got 12 or 13% uh cost of money, it changes values very very fast once you compound it over a few years. Uh-huh. And that had a big impact. I mean the the uh the state system was built with a lot of housing loans and the housing loan subsidy was huge. And in order to maximize the subsidy, you had to make a lot of money. So it was a subsidy that built the high-end housing into the, the crash and was a part of uh, the, the problem that happened in the mid-'80s because a lot of the rail belt economy was based on house builders building houses for house builders to live in while they built more houses. I mean, that was a huge yeah. piece of the economy. I read a book, um, Extreme Conditions, by John Strohmeyer. He was... Mm-hmm. Came here in the '90s, a Pulitzer Prize winner. And he talked about the um, somebody in the legislature, I guess, convinced him to start doing these mortgages or subsidizing mortgages for I think it was like mobile homes, and there was another huge issue well, with that. When, in 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 my view, there was a there was an equity issue, and there was, I mean, it was a it was a bad decision in hindsight, but it was also uh, you know what happened in the big loans basically. Uh, in order to if you if you could only uh, use 30% of your, your income as the payment based on bank standards uh, to get the loan in the first place. You had to be making a lot of money to get a two or $300,000 loan. And the value of the subsidy may have been eight or $10,000 per year. So as a matter of equity, we were loaning money and subsidizing the homes of people with $100,000 incomes to the tune of eight or ten thousand dollars a year, and none of the people at the bottom of the spectrum could afford to even access that program. Right, it was yeah. a dividend to the upper echelon of the economy, and I think part of the reason we got into the uneconomic and ridiculous loans on mobile homes that basically, you know, you're taking twenty-year loans on on property that's going to depreciate instead of appreciate. And we lost money in that effort, but it was kind of tolerated 
because of the inequity of what was going on in the big loans. But right. it was it was you know it was obviously a mistake, and so was the the bubble got bigger because of the big loans being subsidized before it fell, uh, and the little loans uh, defaulted because the value of the collateral was going down faster than the loan was getting paid off. Yeah, no, I, I've I have friends that are, you know, but they were in their thirties back then, and they had properties, and they tell the stories about it. They just said, "Oh, you know, that's it." <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Something else, you, you were under, let's see here, Hammond, Sheffield. Hammond, Sheffield, Cooper, Knowles, uh, Hickel. Murkowski? Uh, well, I was in until, I'm trying to remember when, I think Murkowski came in when I left. Oh, two or, was when he yeah, got elected. Yeah, I I served until January of 03. I didn't run for re-election. I was Senate president, didn't run for re-election. The second time I'd been Senate president, and I retired and was glad not to be here in all the mess that came in the next few years. Yeah, another fiscal problem. <laughs> so, who was, uh, who would you say maybe your, I don't want to say favorite, but maybe the governor you most liked to work with or you most enjoyed working with? Well, I mean, without question, it was Hammond, but uh, I also very much enjoyed working with Wally Hickel. And I had a an ongoing battle with my friends because, you know, some of your friends liked Wally Hickel and some of your friends liked Jay Hammond, and they continuously disliked each other. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until later in life that people agreed that basically Wally Hickel and Jay Hammond were saying the same thing from an opposite starting point. Wally Hickel coined the whole sense of the owner state and the responsibility and the stewardship of being an owner state, that you have more responsibility for managing resources. You're not just a regulatory state, and you have an ownership interest in that. What Hammond did is he made that ownership individual through the the dividend system and the whole permanent fund system, because the permanent fund doesn't have a penny of tax dollars in it. Uh, It's all ownership money. And if you have a sense of equity, you have to realize that there's a difference. You're not taking from somebody to give to somebody else. You're letting someone keep what is their right as a a citizen of the state of Alaska. And the person in the unfortunate situation of holding a sign along the street in Anchorage uh, is just as much an owner of the resources of an owner state as the person who is very, very successful in working. So, so you're not taking the fruits of somebody's labor and giving it to somebody else. You're letting people keep what in a lot of other states would be the individual royalty interest in land or natural resources in some some portion of the value of land. Uh, and you're giving them at least the choice of that royalty trust that is individually held. Uh, it's a system that worked. So it what, protected you, the whole whole fund uh, to become the greatest savings account in the world. And if you go to such odd sources as like the CIA fact book, they used to say that, that of all the funds in the world that were understood by their owners, recipients, beneficiaries, the permanent fund was at, at the top of the list. They cared about the fund because the proceeds of the fund through a formula that was set in statute 
came to them in an individual way. They didn't care if the dividend went up or down because they knew it was based on the performance of their fund. So, so when you say largest fund, you mean a fund where there's like a dividend um, Well, the dividend, the dividend is unique. The, the most successful effort for a democracy any, in the, any time in the world to actually save money for the future and not spend everything that wasn't nailed down. Because there's a the sovereign wealth fund in Norway, but I think that's... But it's a much bigger... Per capita, uh, Alaska is better off. Wow. Um, so where's I going to go with that? So what's your view right now? I mean, based on, you know, there's a big deficit and there's... The governor wants to hand out a big $3,000... Actually, if you count the refund, $4,000 dividend... I mean, do you, do you, where do you, how do you reconcile that with, you know, the deficit and well, there's spending a, cuts and there's, taxes? There are legal questions with regard to previous dividends that come out of the Zobel case right, and yeah, whether you can do some of that. But in terms of following the formula, I think it's absolutely, that is the law. Uh, and that formula was what was put in. That was, uh, I, I think the governor is right on that. Now, what you've got set up today that the legislature is dealing with is a false choice because you have you've taken off the table all the other assets that the state has like ahfc ada or other things and saying no we're not going to use those we're not going to touch those those aren't part of our reserve uh and you've used up most of the constitutional budget reserve uh so it's become uh either either uh uh take the dividend or disassemble a huge portion of the government at a very rapid rate. That's not the real choice because the things off the table are what every other state has done across the country, and that is some form of general taxation and get a fair share for our resources. The state of Alaska is exporting 12 or $14 billion worth of oil every year, and we're getting something like a billion dollars in income out of it, maybe a little bit more. Our tax credits are a huge liability, and we're just barely getting the royalty share when you basically take the tax credits and write off what you're writing off at current prices. So, I mean, that's, that's out of line. It's not what we started out with. When the whole system got going, the, uh, the agreements at the start of, of production were that the state would get one-third of the value of the oil, mm-hmm. the companies would get one-third of the value of the oil, and the federal government would take one-third of the value of the oil, and that would be the way the system worked. So that's one thing, but because of the political arguments and the horsepower of the industry and its impact on the state, that's taken off the table. The second thing that's off the table is a, is a, a simple tax of some kind where people pay something for what they're getting. So what's left on the table is the most regressive Alaskan-only tax proposal you could ever have. Just take the dividends. When you take $1,000 from every dividend, you're taking $1,000 from every kid in Alaska. You're taking the money only from Alaskans. You're not allowing anyone else to contribute to the the problem we're in. You're just saying, we're going to pass a tax that takes virtually nothing from the millionaire as a percentage of income, but may take from a, for a a single parent with uh, two or three kids may take half of their cash income in a year. I think with the crux with, or the conundrum with Dunleavy is 
the governor is he doesn't want to do any taxes and he doesn't want to change oil taxes. I mean, I agree. I, I worked in the oil industry for a while and I've had people say what you said before. They said the third, third, third models is kind of they're they're okay with that. They wish it wouldn't change. That's where every, we started. They, it changes every five or six years. There's new, mm. and and that seems to be more of a problem with a lot of folks I talk to is the uncertainty or instability of, well, if we pass a law now in five or ten years, will it change? Sometimes you know it takes five or ten years to develop a project. Um, but but I agree. I mean, you have to either raise revenues through taxes, income taxes, sales taxes, some form of industry tax, but. The, the current governor and many legislators, they don't want to do any of those things. Well, and, that, and, that's the, and, and, and the problem is if the default solution is that we're going to do this on the backs of our children and grandchildren, then we should be ashamed of ourselves. It doesn't mean that I am choosing one of those alternatives, but the last alternative should be a regressive tax in opposite proportion to need and income that puts 25,000 people back below federal poverty lines uh, and is only on Alaskans. Not one penny comes from an outside worker. And apparently in several industries, 25 or 30% of the entire workforce mm-hmm. is non-resident. Yeah, I just saw it's interesting with the permanent fund. I saw that last year it was 600 and some thousand, 12,000. And this year it was a hundred and I think it was 115,000 less people applied for the dividend. Somebody just put that on, on Twitter. So it's interesting that it went down so much. Well, but I'm not sure that I, I, I don't know that Twitter is the library of Congress of information. Well, so, so, someone we, just the president a, thinks so. And some other people think someone so, just took a screenshot of the, of the permanent yeah. funds and you know, so it's, yeah. maybe it'll change. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so I was going to ask you out. Uh, so in your whole time in the legislature, what was the kind of, coolest thing or what's a really really great memory that stands out something that you maybe saw or somebody you met or some place you travel to oh the things that in terms of of political issues obviously the things that are the most rewarding are the things that are the most long term you know the democratic process way over represents the present and everyone that's in it has to deal with that and and represent their constituency but most of the really big issues are long-term issues, some of which are in conflict with the, the short-term issues. So the whole permanent fund system was a case where you used up your energy, you said no to a lot of spending increases to be able to save money for this generation. And I was responsible for continuously advocating for putting all the excess in the permanent fund reserve into the principal over and over again to the tune of several billion dollars. That today is a significant portion of what we're arguing about. I'm Mm -hmm. glad we did that. I may not agree with the solution that this generation chooses, but I'm glad we passed the choices on to them. You know, I don't want to see, and, and part of, if you spend everything you can get, you monetize everything as fast as you can, and you use it up. What's left 30, 40, 50 years from now when you still have to educate people in groups of 30 or 40 or 50 on the banks of the Kobuk River and you have no oil, you haven't got the resources to do it? What is left for the people that are here? And that's, you know, so I think representing a long-term view versus a short-term view. I think the inherent problem with our system is that most people have a two-year 
or four year view. Well, that's because the political process works that way. Mm -hmm. You have to get reelected to be able to do any good at all. So people build political capital by doing a good job representing people on the little things, on the culvert in the road, on the mess with this, on fixing that. That's how you stay in the process by doing a good job of representing Mm -hmm. small interests over a broad spectrum. But what really matters to the long-term future, and if you're trying to have a positive effect on the future of the state a generation or two away, are the long-term issues. And some of those are financial. Some of them are natural resource. You know, the, the other side of that is all the stewardship issues with land, water, fisheries, animals, and everything else are all a part of that as well. Because people want to monetize things as fast as they can in their generation, in their term, in their time, so that they can have the economic benefit. Do we have the right to do that to the next generation? I don't think so. I think the balance of salesmanship and stewardship is very important in everything we do, in every resource that we hold in common. We are uh-huh. a trust land state. We have a lot of of trust attitude toward the future. It is not just ours. And you know, I spent my whole life in, in land development, buying land, owning land, and, and doing things like this. And I, I have land because I w- I've been here a long time. But the fact is, we don't own the land. The arrogance of us thinking that we really own the land when we are on the earth for 70 or 80 or 90 years and the land is here for a million years is ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's and, and I think a lot of our, our Native friends have a far better attitude because they often express it as they are owned by the land. And, uh, you know, that's just a different view. I uh, But, I mean, you know, in my life, I have changed. I mean, the other thing that we, we think we have a lot more control than we do over other people. We don't control other people. And sometimes we don't even control ourselves. So the illusions of ownership and control are two of the things that in my life to to this point, I have really just got a very different attitude about. I was competitive. I was a, a typical redneck Republican and worked hard for many of the short term things. But that's not all there is. And, uh, and I'm not, you when, know, you were, when you were working for those things, did you did you think much about? Well, when I'm seventy, I didn't. I'll, no, I'll no, give I didn't. these away, or I'll pass no, I them didn't. along. I mean, it, it, it's as simple as uh, as you think of when you when you get older and you have to pay for for uh, crowns and fillings and everything else. You 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 sit back and think, I wish I brushed my teeth more when I was in high school. Yeah. Well, it's just you know the future. But it's, it's social issues, too. I mean, prevention versus mitigation of the damage after the fact is a huge thing. Education is a huge thing. Uh, there are a lot of things that we can do that have a long-term positive impact that aren't just what the short-term response is. But again, you have to, to, to be in this political process you have to choose teams. You have to work with people. You have a lot of different dynamics. Uh, these, the jobs that are here in the legislature are 
phenomenal opportunities for learning experience. So, so before um, we did the podcast, you had said something very interesting that you were a Senate president. When you're a presiding officer, you're not only the captain of the team, but at the same time, the ref. Well, so it is a... Talk, it, talk a little bit about that. That's very interesting. Well, it's something that I don't think people that have, that have sat there uh, or haven't been there think about. And that is, you know, you are the captain of a team. You try to come up with a team approach. But once you go on the floor and you're actually in debate over something, you also have to be a referee and you have to follow the rules. And sometimes the rules don't work in your favor. Sometimes a member of the minority is just eating your lunch on something you're trying to pass that doesn't sound good by the way he's saying it. But he has every right to say it. And if one of your friends, one of your members, thinking he's defending the majority point of view, gets up and tries to make a point of order to stop somebody from speaking in every orderly way that he has the right to say or she, uh, you have to turn to your member and say, no, you're out of order. The point of order is not well taken and return the floor to the person who is calling you every kind of mm-hmm. unpopular name. It's a very, uh, uh, very that's unique, your job. Very unique system. Well, it's some people, I don't think you ever, ever think it through that way, but it really is a factor of being fair. And sometimes fair is not exactly well, what you like. It's also the result of I guess hundreds of years of, you know, trial and error and this they've yeah. figured this stuff out, you know, this is how we Well, it's like best giving, way to do it. It's like giving advice to a friend who is truly a friend. But the advice is not to your advantage. You still tell them the truth. If you're a, if you're a good friend, yeah. That's right. Um, so last thing I want to talk about is uh, why you're in town right now, you're in Juno and you're doing some work with uh Pe- well, not with Pebble Mine, I guess we'll say, right? I I work with uh uh, Salmon State, and I work with the United Tribes of Bristol Bay, and I've spent the last at least dozen years opposing a mineral project in the headwaters of Bristol Bay. It's a massive project that its size and the type of ore body and the location all mean that it's one of those mines that should never happen. It doesn't mean that all mining is wrong. It doesn't mean that we don't need copper. It doesn't mean more than that. But that is a watershed that is the greatest remaining uh, fisheries salmon watershed on the planet. See, Pebble has always kind of fascinated me because I ran in 2012 for the state senate. I lost. But when I was going door to door and I was brand new to politics, I would, um, in Anchorage, I would have people ask me about that a lot. And I knew, I knew about it. I knew, what it, I knew conceptually kind of what it was. But it's just such a um, hot issue for so many you know, people. And... Um, you know, I look, I look at it like I have a friend who's a, who's a geologist, very smart person, and, and they told me, you know, if there's a 1% chance of a, of a dam failure, that's, in his opinion, that was too much. And I, and I don't know, you know, the science of it, and I know there's both sides, but it just seems like, um, to, to me, I mean, there, there is huge risk if something happens. I mean, is that right? If, if there's a... F- it's- well, it's not just risk of something something happening that's catastrophic. It's a risk of the whole project, the infrastructure that it takes to get there, the operation of the project. I mean, when you're moving millions and millions of gallons of fuel, when you're moving uh, millions of tons of toxic material, uh, there are mistakes. And if you take even the best examples at that those volumes, you still risk uh, – substantial problems some people 
on the other side, the pro side, and I, I tend to kind of think this is reasonable. They say, well, there has to be a process. There has well, to be a you know a yeah. f- fair process for every project. Um, but look what's going on right now. You've had, uh, I mean, the, the, the real decisions. You've got a minor in economics. You know, the politicians think they control the economy much more than they do. That's true. You're right about that. And, and huge companies with worldwide century-long mining experience invested in Pebble, spent in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars to assess and produce the document, the, the watershed uh, analysis, the baseline data produced at the expense of uh, uh, Anglo-American, uh, like $100 million, is a fan, and it didn't ask, ask all the questions that we wanted asked, but it was a huge amount of work. And after they spent all that money, were deeply involved, they walked away and in some cases gave their stock to opponents of the mine. Yeah, when, when 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 Rio and Anglo, to, to me that was a big sign that if if, <laughs> if they're not going to do it, because I mean those are two of the biggest mining companies in the world. That's right. Uh, and and after that, to me that was kind of a sign where I said, well, if if they're bailing or if they're not interested, because the other ones, Northern Dynasty, and this is sm- the very small. It's company. a promotion. It's a promotion company who can't they can't uh, do the project they, themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's a five billion dollar project. Proposed by a company that has, and you can take anybody's number, but it's somewhere between 200 million and and 20 million. Uh, if you took all their stock and all their prices versus what the cash they have, but you've got a tiny company that is always for sale, and usually on political life support, basically trying to get somebody to buy in, and they've had they've been been you know they've had bites. And they've uh, landed some big fish, and they've spent a lot of money, but the fish have walked away. And everybody else that's in the investment side of that world looks at it and says, "Wait a minute! This is almost a hundred miles of infrastructure. This is five billion dollars. This has huge local opposition. Uh, what are we doing investing our money in?" It's, it seems like at some point, at the burn rate, at some point, <laughs> like the project won't even pay back the amount of money <laughs> they have, they, if they keep spending money at that rate. Even even with the political atmosphere today in the federal government, uh, you're, you're gonna, you may end up with a, an, an EIS, but it'll be so hollow that everybody will see what it is. It doesn't have any economic base. It doesn't have any wetlands analysis. It doesn't have, I mean, the, the documentation behind it is full of statements about, we'll develop this as we go along. And it doesn't make sense. You know, you've, you've probably heard the term in, in the end of a legislative session when you're trying to get people to agree on some huge package of appropriations and everything else. One of the ways that we used to do it is get everybody to come over for pizza and get your majority together and you have some in somebody's big house and you sit there and for some reason the plan ends up on the back of a pizza box because everybody can see it and you can write it. In yeah, magic I've, marker. I've heard, I've heard that. Well, you know, this is a pizza box plan, but even worse than that, I, I mean, that's, that, that's what it started out as, but even in the planning horizon, while they're working on it, they're changing details. They're changing major details. They change the size of this initial quote, small mine, which is not small. Uh, 
they increased it by 25% in the process. Months after they started the process, it's gone up. So wasn't now they've it- changed the closure uh, statements, and basically it's full of these general statements about what we're going to study later. It doesn't have the details I, of I how the it, dams are going to be built. I thought as maybe I'm incorrect here. I thought it was it, it went from a, a really big mine. Now it's a smaller sc- well, scope. It it's, went from it went from uh, the, the the deposit, which is really what it's all about. The deposit is by their calculation and their data about eleven billion tons. So Ooh. in order to try to get through this process, uh, they've tried to offer a twenty year. Uh, 11% of the total mine. It's not economic. It can't support its infrastructure. It has a complex transportation route where you load everything on trucks and then take it off and put it on ferries and then take it off and put it back on trucks and then take it over and put it on ferries again and then take it from there. The port they've selected is a port where you've got to go thousands of feet offshore to get the deep enough water in a very active beach line that's pretty rugged country. Well, it's also seismic to the whole lot of the well, region. Well, all of their – I mean, it is not – a real plane. So, so they, but they were in town. It last, is a, it is a, well, last week they were the. They they talk very well. They're paid to talk, but the investment community is the answer. Uh, that's where it comes out. If they, and you know, if they could get an EIS, and the EIS meant something, had some credibility, it would be their goal to use the EIS to try and get a major buyer to get a major funder, a partner, somebody. But when Mitsubishi, Kaminko, Anglo, and Rio Tinto, and uh, what's the last one, uh, Quantum, have all walked away after leaving millions and millions of dollars on the table. You know, people don't close their ears and eyes when they're asked for an investment. At some point, the well runs dry, and you're not going to be able to mine in the stock market without the possibility of ever building it. Well, Senator Halford, I really appreciate you doing the podcast. We had a great great discussion, and do it again sometime. I think you could probably tell me all kinds of stories. Maybe one day you'll let me let me look at those notes and those and those uh, <laughs> probably some good stuff in there. Well, thank you again, Senator Halford, and uh, enjoy your stay in Juneau. Thank you. Landline.